from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host, Chris Pay. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers, as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavors, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types, or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And this episode is one of those. I'm joined by three people whose next job could be ballet dancing. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> Kev Green, Paul Bentham, and Max Vetter. Hello. <laughs> I'm just putting my tutu on that you're already wearing it. <laughs> we are going to begin uh in the world of Microsoft and patching because it's that time of the month. <laughs> it's, that... <laughs> it's that it's that time of the month when Microsoft let us know that we need to patch all the things all the time, always. Um and we have noticed that in recent Patch Tuesdays, we are seeing um, news media particularly beginning to, let's say, attach their own ratings of importance and exploitability onto uh, onto vulnerabilities that are being uh, re- released by Microsoft as part of Patch Tuesday. And I think we could say that this sort of began or was prevalent the first time we spoke about it with curveball i think kev we felt was a little bit of an overreaction with curveball given that it wasn't actually being exploited and it was pretty difficult to exploit but infosec twitter and news media went mad for it um and we've kind of had a similar thing happen again now with cve 2020 which i'm sure you've all memorized and tattooed onto your eyelids so that you know what i'm talking about um which is being called um Bad neighbor, yeah. B- I think. Bad neighbor, or the uh, the the re- the redux of Ping of Death, Ping of Death Two, Ping of Death Two. We read an article where it said, you know, by far the worst or the most dangerous bug in this month's, um, you know, patches was. Um, I think Kev begs to differ. So, what what is it that's bad about it? But also, what is it that not not that's not bad about it? So, what we're looking at here isn't actually um, like related to Ping of Death, even though it's uh, being referred to that way. This is IP version 6, uh, and it's in the, the way it's doing some router broadcasting. And basically what happens is uh, there's a piece of uh, text that we control, which is the length field. Uh, and we can basically say uh, we can set that length. And when it hits the Windows machine, uh, Windows will go, oh, I'm not going to actually check the length. I'm going to read the length you've given me. Uh, and I'm going to use that. And what ends up happening is uh, you end up reading into memory, uh, which is essentially a buffer overflow. Um, and what happens here, if you trigger that, uh, you actually get a blue screen of death. So your box will just crash because you're reading memory that you, you can't actually read. Oh, I miss the blue screen of death. It's been so long. I've been a Mac user for so long. I've never, I've not seen one for years. <laughs> as well, as so, a Windows user, yes, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very used to the blue screen of death. Does it still happen? Oh, yeah. Like, that still happens. That blue screen of death still the thing? Yeah, it has a smiley, has, even has a smiley face. And a QR code. Smiley face and a QR code on the wall now. Just to rub it in. <laughs> Goodness, that's advanced, isn't it? We couldn't keep your machine up, but what we could do is produce this beautiful looking QR code. Thanks. So whilst uh, so there there is proof of concept code which has been shared uh, between Sophos and McAfee and, and obviously Microsoft and a, a few others. Um, 
and this just uh, triggers a DOS, so uh, causes a blue screen, causes it to crash instantly. And uh, I'm playing with this right now, and from uh, reading the RFC and all the stuff, it's actually reasonably trivial to replicate this. Now, they've classed this as remote code execution rather than as DOS, and like technically speaking, uh, they're right. Uh, this is a uh, memory overflow, uh, so there is the possibility that it could, this could become wormable, that this could become remote code execution, but there's, there's so many things that would have to line up in order to be able to make that. You'd either have to chain this with another exploit. In fact, I think you'd, you'd actually have to chain this with some other kind of exploit that's going to give you a memory leak so you can do some really complex things. So I'm not saying it's outside the world, the, the realms of like possibility, but it's not something we're going to see exploited anytime soon. And I think the thing that really annoys me is this is what people are talking about, like this RCE that isn't actually right now an RCE. Um, and there's only about 100 like server 2019 instances on the internet that are actually vulnerable to this according to a showdown search. So, and it, effect, it affects Windows 10 as well, but obviously Windows 10 is on the inside of your network. So these IP6 broadcast packets don't go through your network. So you'd have to be inside the network in order to trigger this anyway. But what there are, uh, there are remote code execution vulnerabilities in Office and Outlook, and we've never seen them used before in, in any kind of exploit. Uh, there's remote code execution with proof of concept code publicly available for SharePoint servers, and like you don't have them in organizations with all of your documents that everybody connects to. But sure, let's focus on the ping. I think he's been brewing this for a while, guys. I think this is a pent-up rant. Yeah, he's a, he, feel, he feels a little triggered. It's like he's telling us in a way that makes it seem like he's just tense, but he's actually a little bit yeah, angry so I think, about I, it. Yeah, but the point... quite fuming. I think, <laughs> I think he's a CVSS the... 9. <laughs> How exploitable yeah. is he at this point, if we said the wrong Combustible. thing? Combustible, yeah. I think. The point, the point I want to make is that you should understand your organization and you should understand what you're running and you should be deciding what is important to patch based on everything that releases 82 uh, vulnerabilities of varying degrees uh, releasing this patch Tuesday. Like you should make that decision by understanding your network, not by listening to ZDNet. Z, I mean, it's Z, Z, Z. Isn't it ZD though? <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's a Z. Okay. Fine, sure. This feels like it's not worth getting into. But we have definitely had this conversation before around the missing risk element of how patches are released and defined. So the exploitability element is there. Like there's a line item for how bad is this if exploited so actually, when I think about the definition, that's no, not really even exploitability. It's just the potential impact of it being exploited. And then the other side is obviously how likely is it that someone or a threat actor or you know a, a real threat to your organization um, is likely to go about putting the energy in to actually exploit this particular vulnerability. I think because that doesn't exist in the way that the notifications are done, so that context doesn't exist in what Microsoft released to us, it there therefore means that the journalist is going to write this is a 9.8 it is bad and it also has a nice interesting angle that i can write about so therefore that's what's going to make my headline 
Yeah, and this is uh, so. Uh, Rapid Seven have done something in this space. They've introduced something called Attacker KB. I don't think we've talked about this before, but Attacker KB is a place where the community can go. They can put their opinions, they can put their research in, and you're basically crowdsourcing from experts in the field or from people who understand it. And part of this is like you you create an exploitability score. So, what is the risk? How easy is it to weaponize? Is it seen in the wild? And from that, you create a score. So you can actually go to Attacker KB, look it up and go, all right, it's bad, but I can see these other things are worse. Or actually, yes, in my organization, that is the single thing I should be looking at and focusing all my attention on. How much is this because the the, the phrase ping of death is really sexy in, <laughs> in news? And, and maybe the journalists do un- remember back in the old days of ping of death my xbox 360 had a ring of death <laughs> oh no that's a different thing sorry what are you talking about that was a tough week towels towels fixed that one though <laughs> there's some people out there who don't uh, who don't get that reference <laughs> yeah some people are with us some people are with us and that's fine kev you and not you and me we don't want to talk about Sounds we're left alone here, Paul. I remember when IPv6 was the new exciting kid on the plot. That's what's interesting about this story for me. IPv6, somebody's using it. That's quite incredible. Uh, so this, this, uh, we're going really tangent here, but um, I think it was AWS. Well, you've listened to this. You've listened to this <laughs> podcast before, I presume. So IPv6 came around because, in part, because we'd run out of IPv4 space. Uh, like there weren't enough of them anymore, and I think AWS bought. Uh, for like something like 112 million, they bought a range of IP4 addresses from a amateur radio uh, group that had been allocated them. Like in the world of IPv6, why are organisations and companies still spending hundreds of millions uh, on buying IP ranges? Uh, $24 is the going rate of uh, an IP address. That was a tangent. May not make it. <laughs> Maybe it tickled me when I was reading it. So let me just get this straight. This this little like ring of fire death thing of death basic ping of death sorry uh, you got me confused this this basically just makes your thing blue screen that's it uh so right now yes that's what it does but but that's what happens that happens all the time to windows devices you'd never notice (laughs) that it was being exploited or it was just a day with a y in it the other thing is where is the advantage (laughs) to an attacker in that you know, in this day and age, you know, back in the day when maybe you cared about, you know, dis- dis- disruption mostly and all that kind of stuff, um, maybe it was useful, maybe it would be useful then, but it feels to me like it's not as pernicious as, you know, other kinds of vulnerability. You're not going to get your crypto miner on though, are you? With a, It's dead. It's blue screening. The sexy angle is that if you can find a way to get remote code execution on this, this becomes wormable. Uh, we're talking NHS wanna cry levels of like step me through it right. I've got this ICMP not ICMP exploit with IPv6. I send that it makes the device blue screen. Now tell me how that becomes a wormable exploit in a wanna cry style. So at the minute I'm controlling this field that is the length value, and I set that to a specific value. Uh, Windows receives the packet, tries to verify things, and as part of that, reads too much into memory or sets the memory up in the the wrong way. That causes a buffer overflow. That buffer overflow leads to crash. Now, if I can control even more data than just the length field, then I can say when you crash, instead of crashing and blue screening, crash and jump to my exploit code, which I've also included. Right. So they've proven that there's a unmonitored buffer that can overflow, and then they could, could 
Right. Hackers could like exploit that, which is now already patched. It's whole pointless thing. Yes, um, and we're going. I mean, people are going to be looking for this, but like McAfee have said it, Sophos have said it. Uh, they've both said that it's going to be incredibly difficult, and you're probably going to have to chain this with other exploits in order to like fully weaponize this. Nice, but and then there's a whole load of other actual like problems. Uh, SharePoint, office, yeah, SharePoint, SharePoint remote remote code execution with publicly available uh, code, and we tested that this morning, and that is super trivial uh, to exploit. And you know that I'm not um, necessarily big on you know analysts and research and all that kind of stuff, but Gartner, um, you know, are talking about risk based vulnerability management as being a you know, a big thing that businesses need to be thinking about um, dealing with in 2021. And that is the kind of balance of understanding the vulnerabilities that exist, understanding your own threat surface, knowing about the criticality of your assets and combining all of that available intelligence to be able to make a decision about, you know, in, in what ways to patch. But whilst I think that's an answer for and for businesses, for enterprises, I don't think that addresses the the reason why this has happened, which is that basically journalists are looking for attention grabbing stuff to write about on Patch Tuesday when security people are trying to prioritize what patches they should be pushing out. And that I think is we probably all agreed is the is the root of the trouble. There's a good summary. I mean the bottom line is they do it because it's boring. The rest of them are boring. Oh, look, another vulnerability in office. Like, at least this one's got some meat to it, and we've just spent 17 minutes talking about it. Well, we haven't spent 17 minutes talking about it, have we? We've spent 17 minutes talking about how the way that it's been reported is... <laughs> like magn- a really meta conversation. Yeah, We're, like, talking about yeah, not talking, talking about, about it. Not talking about it. Um, but, I don't, but it feels to me like, as an industry, we can, we can certainly find better ways to prioritise and communicate the nature of vulnerabilities than we than the way that we currently uh, the way that we currently do and we've all got loads of ideas about that so why as an industry are we still doing this like you know it's a cve number with a description of the vulnerability with a cvss score that really only talks about the technicalities of the vulnerability which most organizations did not really care about that much are the people are the people that you're thinking need to care even reading these articles though i mean are they just like kev's like attack a kb right like there's a, like different tiers of people with interest are the people the people who need to know are doing what kev says aren't they they're not they're, there's not a load of people like with my level of knowledge going oh my god there's an ipv6 exploit patch 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 oh dear kev gave kev gave me the face that means that there are people like me doing that i've i've been in organizations where um uh, so I was in the SOC or the CERT and like, we saw these things come out. So we gave warning to the, the vulnerability management team and said, hey, just so you're aware, these things are coming up on the radar. Uh, and then like, we give them advice. Uh, and then some C-level exec comes in and goes, oh, my God, I've just seen this. You must fix it now. It's like, no, no, like it's it's fine. Like, no, Sky News have just told me this is going to be uh, like exploited immediately. So you have to patch it. And I was like, no, please. No, you will do it now. Uh, it happens that's why it's called ping of death because any any CISO will go I've got to go and t- talk to Kev about this ping of death uh, first thing tomorrow morning because I remember the name because it's that, really that easy that is 
That is interesting. So you think that the reality is that it's not like there's a load of trusted security praise. There's people who've got like the memory capacity for three words, ping of death. <laughs> go, oh. And we like to call those people management. <laughs> oh dear. Not every organization does this, obviously. Some people do, like you say, they take a measured and balanced approach. They'll have their um, their, their cabs that they run. Actually, sorry, Kev, sorry, I'm just getting a news article in. Kev, have you patched the, uh, there's this new thing, apparently, some sort of denial of service for Windows. Have you patched all our devices today, Kev? What are you doing? Kev, Kev, it's called the ping of death. <laughs> Fortunately, automatic updates are on, so... I mean, we could get into the whole Microsoft has scored this 9.8, but it's actually only a 9 on CVSS, because Microsoft. Right, so you're saying <laughs> that the CV, the assigned CVE has one CVSS score, and then Microsoft release information about the patch and give it a different score? Uh, they also have a, a secondary scoring system, which is either a 1, a 2, or a 3, or it might be zero, one, two, or three, uh, which de- de- which is them defining how likely it is to be exploited. I think so. Uh, a zero means it's exploited now. Like a one is incredibly likely, and a three is unlikely. Uh, it's and so how have they rated this one? Uh, I think this came in at a one. I think the I think that's part of why this got picked up is because Microsoft turn around and say this is going to be exploited. So mm. either they know something that the rest of us don't, which or, does also happen. Sometimes. But again, like we've seen this. this the number of times I've seen like RCEs released on Patch Tuesday that have never, ever, ever, ever become RCEs because they're so complex. Now, we could not let this week pass without talking about the most famous ballerina in the history of cyber. Um, of course, I'm referring to Fatima. Um it turns out her name's not even turns out her name's not even Fatima. Turns out the the photos of a US an actual US dance artiste. So there's a thing that I also learnt this week. But it it cannot have passed you by the government advertising campaign that carried a photo of a ballerina with the words and let me just make sure that I get this absolutely right. Fatima's next job could be in cyber. Open brackets. She just doesn't know it yet. Close brackets. Now, this is a lo- actually a long-running um, government campaign. These images have been used in lots of places for quite a long time. What happened was that someone, and I can't tell you who, but someone um, with a fairly um, big Twitter following in the arts basically posted up and said, this surely this has got to be a joke um and then from there the whole thing just went absolutely insane there's another there's another angle to that there's a uk politician uh, who turned around and said those in the arts should probably think about retraining uh in the in the in the wake of covid19 well this was the chancellor so think- who said so yeah this was the <laughs> chancellor who has said that he was who has been pretty clear about saying he was misquoted but yes of course the timing of those two of the two things in combination um hasn't been all that great of course the first thing that the government did um was to distance itself from the ads which it had paid for um but hadn't actually come up with um so yeah this isn't the the government minister saying this is not something that you know the department for culture media and sport agree with it was crass, and it was a partner. What they what they called then a partner campaign. I don't really know what that means, um, but 
the the benefit that has come out of this is so many memes so many memes <laughs> they're brilliant most of them with dido <laughs> most of them with dido harding in i noticed i think i think to be fair to uh my previous employer who was th- at the center of this because i think they're the ones who created the efforts um yeah they, they've been running along with cyber first which is a ncsc program been running these adverts so basically you know about getting everyone into cyber uh and and diversifying the cyber industry as well which is uh, as we talked about previously on on the podcast a, a great um goal that we need to push forward however i think in in light of covid and some of the chancellor statements and then this being dropped like on its own it looks like the government just going by the way doesn't matter that the arts aren't here anymore go and do something in cyber <laughs> so i think it was not really their fault that this uh this got picked up but it is um yeah that the timing of it all kind of came together quite nicely it highlighted for me a couple of things the first was the number of people who just don't really have any context for what the word cyber you know could or might mean and then it set me thinking about well what does it really <laughs> what does it really mean like used in this context a job in cyber like that's extremely broad what is that like working in an internet cafe do they still exist i don't know i watched a film where there was an internet cafe in recently but you know doesn't it do internet cafes still exist like does it mean does it just mean it does it mean i don't know it, it to me it, it raised all kinds of questions we we had this issue so i, I was i was teaching uh, cyber first at um, a few years years back as they were, the whole thing was going and and clearly the government have this problem as well because they they came up with a term called cyberists and it was oh, on all, oh all the videos and, and it's like do you want to be a cyberist and we did question at the time kind of it's just a, a whole new word that they that no one had spoken about before that they were they were trying basically no one knows what cyber is and how do you describe it to someone who wants to go into a job uh go and do some cyber ringing that's what's great about this because it's an insult to the arts profession then there's a load of people with like ninja um uh photoshop skills building loads of memes about this and so they've what they've done is they've brought a cyberman in and done like a load of hilarious memes so well done the arts because you gave us a good laugh on twitter this week so uh, cyber infosec twitter obviously completely silent on the whole topic because they're all thinking yeah ofs like why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want to be in cyber (laughs) (laughs) who is ballet (laughs) ballet what's ballet isn't that I didn't know. I didn't even know any ballet jokes. Nothing. I wondered whether <laughs> I had wondered whether a little that perhaps Infosec Twitter were avoiding potential controversy by then mentioning mentioning the fact that we are like we are suffering from a significant shortage of people to work in those jobs. A and B, we are facing you know more. Um, threats in the you know in the cyber realm for want of a better description including nation state like we we do need we do need these people i was kind of surprised that nobody was ready to say that and the other thing that i was more surprised by and i nearly tried to kick off myself but i thought you know what i'm not going to get wading into this which i wondered whether that was maybe another thing that was going on um was the the fact that you know in 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 a lot of context Many cyber jobs, cyber security jobs, you know, offensive security jobs as a, as a perfect example are extremely creative and require, um, quite an 
artistic approach um to to achieving an, an end so i was kind of surprised that one of those sorts of threads didn't didn't catch fire but it was there were tumbleweeds really across um across infosec twitter yeah the ads you know there's a load of the the ads are quite interesting because there's a load of other ones there's a ballerina but there's also pe- it's it's people in different jobs and it's trying to say cybersecurity is a career path for anybody that's interested and please get into it what I, I and I really like your angle you're taking there, Chris, on the creativity aspect because I one of my criticisms about infosec cybersecurity professionals is it's a bit like paint by numbers. There's so much button pressing, clicky, you know, follow this instruction, do this training course. Like there's the creativity, and there's so many people that have called, sort of retrained from sort of very. Um, process orientated roles it's risk management it's follow you know this kind of uh, path that actually the diversity of thought that you get from people in arts coming into the uh, sector would it is necessary that's one of the skills that we're missing and often when i find myself doing some of kev's capture the flags like it's impossible to do those if you just know how to follow a to b to c to d you have to think laterally you have to think creatively you have to be able to you know see that story about what that hacker's doing and so i kind of fully support that campaign although that particular image was completely tone deaf um because creativity and diversity is needed in cybersecurity. but i suppose it was only tone deaf a year or two later after no it was recent, tone deaf before no, it, it was tone deaf at yeah. the time max it, it was dreadful well yeah i suppose compa- but when you put it against all the other ones yeah poor fatima Fatima's got dreams, Max. She's going to be, you know, whatever famous. What's, she might already what's, have, um, have, have reached the pinnacle in ballerining. And then, ballerina you know, ring? Be the best. Ballerina? Yeah, ballerina ring. Balleting? No. <laughs> ballet. Probably just ballet. Yeah, probably, just, probably just ballet, yeah. <laughs> I did like how Paul brought it round, back round to how, you know, we need a uh, different type of training. Always on GT. If only there was some, a, a training platform where you could be creative. What's more interesting is let's think about this in, in context. If Fatima turned up at an interview for an entry-level SOC analyst job... Well, in her tutu... <laughs> let's, well, let's imagine in this case she is still wearing the tutu because it makes the point more clearly. Do, you know, how how is she... How seriously is she taken... Um, in terms of her readiness to do that job in the world as it currently in the world as it currently is not very and that is that is our problem as an industry that's not that's not Fatima's problem that's not the the arts problem that is our problem as an industry because it's not just about releasing uh, ads that try to do the right thing in a really tone deaf way it's also about an industry changing its entire attitude to who can do these kinds of jobs because although the ads might say that, you know, uh, anyone can, um, as an industry, unfortunately, in my view, we don't. Completely agree. The one thing I would say to Fatima, honestly, cybersecurity is boring. Don't come to it. Go go live your dreams. <laughs> go be the pro. I don't know. Unless you're going to be like red teaming nation states, maybe it's pretty interesting <laughs> although i mean the good thing the thing that they should have said on that advert is that ballerinas have a short career uh because it's very like it's a, a footballer f- like a footballer could do yeah, well a, exactly yeah, yeah because it's really hard you know really hard on their bodies physically lots of long days lots of performances like she, she does need a backup plan 
<laughs> Got a backup plan. I, that's that's the next advert. <laughs> I don't say this is fine. Like cybersecurity is not good as, as good as ballerinaing. Moving on to something that we have actually discussed on the podcast before, which is how involved should governments be in disrupting, disarming, uh, what's another word that I could use? Destroying. Destroying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cyber criminals or nation state actors. Disarming maybe is is better. Well, we've talked about it before. Um, We've touched on it hypothetically we've also talked about um vaccines we we talked about that not so long ago um but it came to light this week that in recent weeks the u.s military has mounted an operation to temporarily disrupt what is described as the world's largest botnet um which is trickbot so many of you will uh, have heard of trickbot it's basically an army of of at minimum um a million infected infected computers being run by russian speaking uh, criminals as they as they defined in the Was- as they defined in the washington post um <laughs> there is not an expectation this will result in a permanent dismantling of the trickbot um network um and a lot of the way that this is being communicated is uh, anonymously from um, the Department of Defense and Cyber Command specifically um, as part of a whole of government approach to securing the elections particularly so that's being seen as the that's being seen as the angle for uh, for this disruption um, so Kev I guess a good place to start would be to try to understand what exactly have they done um, to achieve this disruption partial dismantling like what how involved have they actually got trickbot is a piece of malware um, that's designed to infect devices and then doesn't really do a lot then it just kind of sits there reports back in and goes hey i'm here like what do you want me to do so you can use it then to do a wide range of things so you want to steal some data you want to do some banking theft you want to deliver some malware you want to run a ddos attack uh, you want to rent these things out like that's its its strength and that's its power and TrickBot has been around for a while, um, and the botnet operators, uh, as they're called, um, they're quite good at running this botnet, and they've put in a lot of resilience uh, around it so that if it does get disrupted, if they do start to lose some of the control, then they can regain in other ways. So that's that's broadly speaking what TrickBot is. And what we saw um, like a few weeks ago was that some of the config files um, that were being distributed? So, Trickbot has this update mechanism. So, uh, you have uh, each implant has a config file. You send out the config file. The config file says, "These are the commands I want you to run. These are the C2 servers I want you to connect to. These are the actions I want you to take." Uh, and in order to keep itself up to date, the operators can go uh, and push out new config files. And what we saw happen with Trickbot was that somebody, and we didn't know who at the time, started pushing out a load of config files that basically said, only talk to yourself and don't connect to anybody on the internet. So it set all the C2 servers to be 127.0.0.1, your local loopback address, so like don't talk to anybody other than yourself. And uh, it wasn't just once. Uh, we saw this happen uh, in a couple of different waves. And... The only there's there's two there were at the time two possible um, 
options. One, that somebody had seized control of the botnet. Um, the operators themselves had decided they want to do this. Like That doesn't seem like a logical thing. Or, or there was some kind of flaw uh, in the communication protocol that was being abused. And I think what actually happened was they compromised one of the, the control servers and then used that to issue out commands. How does this work, in though, in the context of that... Um... The, the rationale, which was to to basically ensure, you know, um, a, a fair election. I, I'm sort of struggling to get my head around how this, as a cyber crim- as a botnet run by cyber criminal gangs, connects to that rationale. Uh, it, I mean, it's there are some tenuous links. It's uh, you kind of have to like use some creative imagination here. But I have this botnet of one million devices, and I want to. I'm going to write this news article on some website that says uh, Trump is the best thing since God came into existence. I use my army of botnets to promote that, and that now becomes a top story. So people seeing that, it's like driving fake news. That's one potential angle. So the, disinfo- the disinformation angle, basically. Yeah. yeah um, obviously, we know that the uh, US, uh, they're in the same as everybody else, that like they're having difficulty with COVID. Uh, so they're doing uh, lots of balloting, like mail ballots. Um, they're still going to be electronic balloting. Uh, so uh, sending large botnets to attack any of that infrastructure to delay or possibly compromise the votes or even just raise the the thought that they've been tampered with might be enough to go uh, and have an impact on that. I think this this whole thing is exactly what government should be doing frankly Absolutely, so I mean, it's yeah. really i think this article is particularly interesting because it's in the context of u.s cyber command now u.s cyber command has been around for a long time and it was part of the national security agency so they were together and trump um elevated it and and there is some light being created between nsa and cyber command where nsa's intelligence gathering um, and defensive operations and cyber command is defensive as well but also offensive and i think this article is interesting because it's u.s government taking action against criminal uh, operations uh, in protection of u.s interests it's actually like personally it's the kind of thing i'd want my government to be doing to protect my nation just like they would be if they were physical intruders i would like them to be doing it in a cyber context as well yeah, but I th- there's some there's a bit of confusion here, and if you when you get into the meat of of some of what the differences between um, you know the eight these different agencies it, you know that are part of the U.S. government, um, there there have been questions raised about whether Cyber Command specifically is the is actually the right part of the U.S. government to be carrying out those. Um, attacks for want of a better word again and they're they're in they're even in the use of that word is loaded with a whole load of other potential ramifications for what happens when a government decides to do what they have done now in this context none of us are going to say oh they shouldn't have dismantled that um you know that cyber criminal um network but there there is some there is some debate to be had around um the policing versus military intervention like some of us would say the people responsible for that should have been brought should be being brought to justice and the the dismantling of the network is a little bit like a sticking plaster super tricky isn't it as well like we've said many times that the reason why there's no justice for the people perpetuating these cyber 
uh, or perpetrating these cyber attacks is that they're protected by the nations they live in. So we kind of got to ask, like, what are they supposed to do? We were all up in arms when there was potential Russian involvement in the um, original, uh, whenever that was, 2016 election, 2015, whenever it was. Um, you know, the same is true now. Like, what, what, how are we hoping to protect the democracy to make it like really emotive of of America if we can't if we can't take put those people to justice we've got to do something. But I think it's also you you bring into like the proportionality and use of force right as well and and like you could argue uh, hacking back like what have they done to those victims' computers and everything else but again it looks like they've done it in a proportional way here where it just loops back to that address seems to a really good way of you know disarming that botnet in a, in a large way and they might have other operations going on into the actual operators as well it does seem like a, a good good balance yeah i suppose the other question to ask then is you know the though that infra that infrastructure for want of a better description exists in a in a physical location or a number of physical locations where do we draw the line there? How does the US react to the potential that someone might attempt to do the same thing to a criminal organization doing something similar in their territory? And then suddenly it all, again, it's always these, these things always, once you begin to take them to the nth, you know, to the nth degree, kind of get muddier and muddier. Um, it feels like reading into, into this, that the real rationale was an attempt to, um, basically remove the opportunities for disinformation coming from explicitly coming from russian trolls in um uh in russia obviously um and that's the and that's the rationale because a similar thing was done back in i don't know when the midterms were but back in back when the midterm um elections happened um there was a similar there was a, a similar operation that happened then which was very explicitly focused on taking trolls in russia offline um so clearly it feels like this is a targeted thing for this moment in time rather than perhaps an indication that this is the way that things will continue politically it's quite interesting as well because there's a lot of accusation that trump's trying to interfere in the election trying to like stop people voting and all that kind of stuff and then here in a different part of the forest cyber command have obviously been instructed to protect the election it's kind of both things happening at the same time. Because if you've seen the Cambridge Analytica stuff, how the, the an analysis of uh, the spread of of the fake news um, through botnets and that you know how that was utilised by um, not just Facebook, but uh, well, it is utilised by the Facebook engine because the more the more news it sees, the more news it spreads. Um, so it, it, you know the botnets do have a massive role to play in spreading fake news and that fake news is then picked up by whoever wants to to do the the bad things like potentially russia did in 2016 but surely we assume that those um those technologies or those um social networks they surely now must be investing as much in attempting to identify disinformation as they are in surfacing relevant information to their users aren't they please tell me that's true the problem with facebook and twitter and anyone else um policing their own um misinformation is that they their algorithms directly generate funds 
the more things get shared. So that it's directly working against their profits by cutting a lot of that news. You say that, but they have hired. Like, they have adverts. Like, Twitter have adverts for people to come in specifically to look at machine learning for exactly this, like filtering out fake news. Uh, so... Like the fact that they're hiring is is going some way to. I think it just goes to show how hard it is to build a machine learning algorithm that identifies fake news. It's actually really hard, and it'd probably be better if you put an army of uh, intelligent people in a room and just get them to like fake or not fake or not. And you have to do a lot of research sometimes. Like it's not it's and Twitter moves so fast that things you know I I you know I've seen and Chris you're a marketeer you know this as well that the sort of rate of uh, sharing a link or a viral link especially is it's in the first hour so these not only do you not have time to do the research whether it's fake or not but it's also it's dead like it's it's over after an hour or maybe 24 hours so you don't even have that ability to sort of escalate it up into a into a proper human uh, check yeah how social networks handle disinformation is you know right in focus now this week again because there was an article published in the new york post that referenced joe biden's son and and was um and is that a debate has now been um stoked because twi- both twitter and facebook have made the decision to basically hide that um, to hide that article away. Of course, the article's still published. You can still go find it if you want to. And lots of people, I'm sure, we could probably take a look at the Google Analytics and find out how many people are now how many people are now searching for it because it itself has become the story. Um, Twitter have said, Twitter have said we didn't do it necessarily do a great job of communicating why that URL was um, blocked, but they have now done that. Um, but I think it just is back to the same old thing. Like we are in one breath, we are saying it's great for government. Uh, it's great for governments to get involved in dismantling, um, you know, bad infrastructure that could lead to disinformation. And then when the social networks try to do it, uh, we all immediately think, oh, yeah, well, what are they up to now? What's in it for them? Like it, there is this sort of there feels like there's this continual tension between most of these organizations all trying to do the same thing. I suppose it's the motivation for me as well. Like the motivations for Facebook and Twitter is money. Like that's just inherently what, what they need, right, to, to survive. And and even though they might hire a few people in and it might sound, sound good in the news, the, you look at the algorithms, the algorithms are designed to make money from from sharing right and and fake news shares more than real news and the these russian bots seem to be way ahead of like we, we used to try and make fake accounts up and you get flagged pretty quickly but they must be way better than <laughs> twitter and, and facebook are at detecting them because they still they're still out there so i think it's a continual kind of cat and mouse game isn't it from that perspective and then we must bring things to an end. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at ImmersiveLabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. Until next time, from all of us, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>